to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. This month we're talking about... Jews in Space! Where are all the Jews? We're going to be engaging in a sort of futurism, imagining Jewish life in Star Trek's 24th century. But first, a little bit of news. Chava, big changes in the world of Star Trek this week. Oh yeah? Tell us about it, Josh. We have something really exciting going on. We have the announcement of a new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. (gasps) Wow. This is one that a lot of fans have been asking for for a little while. It's going to be called Strange New Worlds, set on the old 1701 with Captain Pike and and number one and Spock as they were imagined in season two of Discovery. Akiva Goldsman, what do you think, Jewish fellow? (laughs) Who's a producer of the series says that it's going to be optimistic Star Trek and episodic television, which I guess, well, I really enjoyed Discovery and Picard. It feels like a return to form. That's so exciting. Were you a fan of Discovery's depiction of the Enterprise and Pike and crew? I actually was kind of into that. Yeah, I thought it was nice to have that classic comeback. In a certain way, it's almost like NBC picking up the cage. I guess it's CBS, <laughs> not NBC, but and it only took them 55 years. So what do you think about it, Josh? Are you super excited? Yeah, I'm really excited. I think there's so many opportunities to use Star Trek to hold up a mirror to society, to really explore ideas on the cutting edge of public discourse and science fiction. I don't want to like put down other people's Star Trek, but like the Star Trek that I really feel like I'm a fan of is that kind of next-gen and Deep Space Nine era. This seems like a setup that can reward fans like me. No way. You like TNG and Deep Space Nine. No <laughs> who, who way. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? take in the Star Trek world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Maybe I'll be able to actually enjoy it rather than just loathing all of the sexism. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, speaking of sexism, should we talk about the Hebrew school homework that was assigned for this week? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you mean Sub Rosa? Oh my god. I don't understand why you even assigned this. <laughs> it was terrible, and nothing about it was Jewish. Here's why I assigned it. Because Journey's End and Sub Rosa are two of the only episodes of Star Trek I could find where a present-day Earth national, cultural, ethnic, or other related group is depicted living in the 24th century in a manner that's organized around that group as it exists right now. So in Journey's End, we have a group of indigenous people of the Americas who set off to chart their own destiny. And in Sub Rosa, we have a kind of cosplay take on scotland (laughs) yeah (laughs) they were both kind of offensive to present day people of those cultures it just felt like it was so mild as part of the plot line so it's like this is a terrible episode we should not be suggesting watching this blame josh yeah it is a terrible episode (laughs) It, it definitely has some like really cringy lines how about where it ends on like a wink and a smile of whatever else he might have done he made her very happy talking about ronan imprisoning and assaulting 800 years of beverly crusher's family members yeah which oh by the way good job ronan you beat the vulcans to earth by like 
400 years there. So I guess we got to rewrite the Federation history books on this one. But I actually think there's some really cool things in Sub Rosa. If we like throw away all the dialogue and all the plot (laughs) and only look at the depiction of Earth cultural groups in the future, that opening scene with the funeral, there was something really interesting hidden in it. It kind of takes the form of a Christian religious funeral with traditional Scottish garb. Mm-hmm. It's being officiated by Maturin, who's an alien, and Maturin closes with the line, and so now we commit her body to the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope that her memory will be kept alive within us. And I looked up that line because it kind of sounded familiar. It turns out they took a passage from the Book of Common Prayer, which is a religious text used by Anglicans and Presbyterians, and they took that Anglican Presbyterian funeral line and like de-religified it. So in the Book of the Common Prayer, it ends in sure and certain hope for the resurrection through Jesus Christ. And in like a very Star Trek fashion, they got rid of all the religion-y stuff, but kept the poetry and the symbolism. And I mm-hmm. thought that, uh, that is was really a nice. really interesting way to go. But that was in the first minute. Couldn't we have just said like... Listen to this. Watch minute. the first minute of Sabrosa. Yeah. But then you never would have heard the line where Beverly Crusher says that she fell asleep reading a particularly erotic page of her grandmother's diary. <laughs> like, what was that? <laughs> This is a really weird episode. It says something, too, about how cultural or national groups are playing out. The character of Ned Quint, he would be antiquated even today, I think. I I don't really know Scotland that well. I was there for all of three days on my honeymoon. But he seemed like cartoonish even today. He seems like kind of a mid-20th century literary imagination of a Scottish person. He looks like a character on Outlander. (laughs) Right. The depiction in Journey's End is really different. Definitely, yeah. So, whereas the planet from Sabrosa is sort of like a Scottish-themed Federation world, and it almost seems like maybe they just kind of chose an aesthetic, and and they say that it's a Federation colony, and that the Federation actually terraformed this world, which means it must have been like an enormous infrastructure project with like committees and funding and all kinds of stuff. The stuff they gloss over in Star Trek. Right. There's hardly any episodes about infrastructure spending. The group on Dorvan 5 set out intentionally to be apart from the Federation and set their own course and their own destiny. But I think we have to stop for a second. Star Trek has a really problematic history when it comes to portraying the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I feel a little bit inequipped here because on the one hand, I feel like we can't discuss this episode without calling attention to it. But I also feel that I do not have the expertise whatsoever to call out the very real problems in this. Yeah, definitely. So I want to direct listeners to two sources. The first is a podcast called Métis in Space, and they actually have an episode entirely on Journey's End, and they talk about other depictions of Indigenous peoples in Star Trek. It's a great, great, great podcast, and so I would go check that out. 
There's also the video on YouTube called Native Americans in Star Trek from the channel Trexpertise. They do a really good job of summing up a whole history of problems that Star Trek and film and television in general have when it comes to depicting Indigenous cultures. Go check that out, and we're actually going to play a short clip of that now. The reductionist problem seems to be on display across all Trek episodes and movies that deal with Native Americans, a practice at odds with Trek's theme of celebrating diversity. Star Trek continues to play on many Native stereotypes, such as inferiority to civilized society, Native roles as outsiders or opposites to civilization and as victims of that civilization, and the supposed spirituality of the Indian and how it's the opposite of civilized rationality, which writers at times purposely utilize. And, of course, there's the white savior narrative. And I would be remiss not to mention that the Paradise Syndrome might be the most offensive episode of Star Trek on record. Trek wrestles with its representation of Native America, sometimes falling completely in line with what stereotypes general American media perpetuates, and a few times knowingly engaging those stereotypes. It's probably worth saying while we're here we ourselves are in Toronto, and we're recording while situated on traditional territories, including the territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Mississaugas of New Credit First Nations, and the Métis. So that's something I guess we can be mindful of as well. Yeah, it, it was definitely a very problematic episode. I couldn't handle them just talking about Indigenous people as Indians. I don't even think that was acceptable in that time. Picard tells Anthwara... Quote, I have been fascinated looking into the history and traditions of your people. And I just thought like, uh, oh my God, that line just makes my skin crawl. You know, I think as Jews, like we also get kind of questions about that from people who are like well-meaning, but something's a little bit icky in the way they're posing their question towards us. About what? I don't know. You, do you ever like meet someone who's like a little bit too much of like a fan Oh, like, like a, like a Judeophile who's... <laughs> oh, that's what you mean. Yeah. There is a difference between someone who like comes from the outside with genuine interest in like connecting with Jews and Jewish people and Jewish culture and traditions versus like someone who's like not a part of the community, but knowing about us is like their hobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that's a bit strange and I wouldn't really want to interact with a person like that. Here, it's a little bit like Jew lovers. Yeah. The episode relies on some dehumanizing tropes, and the Trexpertise video speaks to this a little bit, but they use the so-called magic Indian trope, which is assuming that Indigenous cultures have some, like, meta-human spiritual mystical powers, which, when you break that trope down, is really dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. And also, Wesley takes on, like, the white savior archetype. The same problem that you see in films like Dances with Wolves or Pocahontas, where, like, the white man has to come in and save these simple people. It's a really problematic trope that was from like a period in time when maybe Hollywood had moved on from like the overtly animalistic dehumanizing tropes of indigenous peoples, but still hadn't really gotten their act together. Yeah. Have we ever talked about Jamaki Highwater? No. Ugh, ugh. So I don't know if Journey's End is before this or not. So Journey's End from like a production perspective. This is right near the end of season seven, and Voyager was already under development. And so Journey's End was written as part of 
the Voyager backstory because it mm-hmm. speaks to the the pending conflict with the Maquis. Chakotay, mm-hmm. it, they never say that he's from this planet and actually like the timeline doesn't quite match up because Dorvan 5, they say they've only been there for 20 years, but he's from a planet a lot like this one. Mm-hmm. So Voyager hired this guy named Jamaki Highwater who called himself a Native American creative consultant. And like the idea was that you would hire him to ensure appropriate representation and cultural sensitivities. Jamaki Highwater was a complete fraud. He was actually named Jakey Marks. Oh, God. I looked it up. That one's like kind of on us. Oh, no. Um, He just passed himself off as indigenous and really like defrauded Star Trek. But I do not let the writers and producers of Star Trek off the hook for this at all. Because if they'd done like even the slightest bit of work or research on their own, they probably could have discovered that the things he was telling them were total, total BS, which Mm -hmm. is why like Chakotay's traditions and backstory don't make sense at all and like pull from so many different traditions which is a problem that Journey's End has also, where it's really like grabbing mishmashes of lots of different indigenous cultures mm-hmm. and just like getting things wrong. Like imagine if Jews were depicted in an episode of Star Trek and they like made up a holiday or made up a ritual that we'd never heard of. We would be so, so, so mad. It's true. That's kind of how I feel about people that like Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually a holiday. So I can't even imagine how mad I'd be. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Star Trek, like, pay attention to this. Hey, really easy fix would also be having indigenous people in your writer's room. I don't know, it's really disappointing. Yeah. All that being said, there is a really poignant anti-colonial message that comes through parts of this episode. Mm-hmm. Wesley is our protagonist, and he stands up to Picard and says, what we're doing here is wrong. These people are not some random group of colonists. They're a unique culture with a history that predates the Federation and Starfleet. I know Admiral Necheyev gave you an order, and she was given an order from the Federation Council, but it's still wrong. And that's a really powerful denunciation. Mm-hmm. I think where this episode maybe succeeds is that it does that thing that science fiction is supposed to do, where it holds a mirror up to society and uses science fiction to really highlight an injustice. And that injustice is the treatment of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Yeah, definitely. I was just going to say how strange I thought it was that Worf was the one sent to escort these people off of their planet. I don't know why I found that strange. Oh, yeah, send Deanna. So he's their security officer. So it makes sense that he was in charge of that operation. I don't know. I feel like it's just insensitive. In the episode, The Ensigns of Command, where they have to go evacuate this human colony because the world is being handed over to the Sheliac, they like send Data down to go very empathetically talk and try to convince people using like words and not aggression. And Worf's really bad at that. Yeah, not the most emotive person to send to that type of situation. They should have sent Deanna. Yeah. There's also a really dark side to this episode that I don't think it was intentional when they were writing it, but kind of comes through later. I'm sort of treading into spoiler territory for the later seasons of Deep Space Nine. We don't know the particular fate of Dorvan 5, but for the colonists who stayed behind in the demilitarized zone in the second half of Deep Space Nine, things go really, really grim for them. Mm -hmm. It's pretty disturbing to think about that. Again, we don't know the fate of these people, but probably not so good. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
Hi there, Star Trek and the Jews. My name is Sonia Ballantyne. I am a Swampy Cree writer, filmmaker, and nerd from northern Manitoba originally, currently based in Winnipeg. And if any of you have any clout at Star Trek Picard, I am looking for a writing job. So if they need a native writer to come on, I would be happy to do so. <laughs> so I was asked to give my opinion on the Star Trek TNG episode Journey's End. And I have a very, let's say, complicated history with this episode. I was, well, I still am a huge fan of Star Trek. I have always, always have been. As a child, I really hated this episode, save for one reason, and that was Tom Jackson. I am Swampy Cree, as I mentioned, and Tom Jackson is a Cree person from, I believe, Alberta. So seeing him on Star Trek was just like me being on Star Trek. So I, again, a complicated history with this episode. First off, the tribe living on Dorvan 5 is not given a name. Who are they? Are they Cree? Are they Ojibwe? Are they Hollywood's favorite people, the Cherokee? And secondly, it's, what, 200 years in the future, and us Native people are still getting kicked out of places. Many Indigenous peoples are matrilineal. And to see that the representatives of the peoples of Dorvan 5 were all male drove me up the wall when I was a kid just because it was like it was such a slap in the face to me that they were all dudes like not one woman was there just killed me Ugh. the treatment of indigenous people on Star Trek has always been such a sore spot for me as I said it felt so disappointing to have a mirror held up for me to see myself in this episode and all I saw was people like me being forced off their land even in the future one positive I do like, even if it was sort of a two steps forward, one step back thing, was when Lakanta tells Wesley that his culture is rooted, but not limited to the past. The spirits of Vulcan and Klingon come to them in their sacred spaces. I like the idea of my culture evolving in such a way that new knowledge is incorporated into our belief systems. However, again, this is two steps forward and one step back. I really appreciate you guys looking into this episode with such knowledge and such care towards why this episode would be problematic. I think it's very rare that people, especially if you love the content, especially if you love the show, to look at it under a critical eye and understand that just because Star Trek represents the best of humanity in a lot of ways doesn't mean it always represents all of humanity in the best of ways. It has ideals, but it is still operating within its own time period. So, for example, in the 60s, having women on the bridge, but women are still the ones who have to get food for Kirk. Or the way Yahura is still wearing, like, a skirt. And the way that they make... Um, Deanna Troy wear that weird outfit she wears for most of the season, <laughs> most of the seasons of TNG. Even though this show is striving to show how much better humanity is in the future, it is still limited by the current environment that it, it w lives in. So thanks a lot for having me on the show. I'm really excited to see uh, what else you guys come up with. And 
again, thank you for having me and uh, stay safe. Bye. Thank you so much, Sonia. If you want to learn more about Sonia's work, check her out on Twitter at honey underscore child. Or check out her new podcast, Live from the Pool House, which is a podcast talking about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We know there's a Scottish planet, and we know there's a planet (laughs) of the Indigenous Peoples of the Americas, probably more than one, because Chakotay likely isn't from Dorvan 5. So is there a Jewish planet out there? (laughs) Isn't it just Bajor? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on. No coding. Is there like a planet in the 24th century Star Trek Prime universe where a bunch of Jews went and set up either a Jewish society or a a society more like Kaldos from Sabrosa that is like open to everyone, but inspired by like a Jewish aesthetic and Jewish culture. Is it out there? Should it be out there? I think it's not out there. Hmm. But I do think that there are many communities probably on different planets. But I doubt that there's an actual like Jewish planet. Usually like the Jews are kind of interspersed with other people. And we kind of like that too. Right. (laughs) I guess there's sort of two models that you could take here. Even in, in North America today, there are Jewish communities that are physical and geographic. You have almost two archetypes, dissenters and like specializers. There's places like Kyrgyz Yoel, which is in upstate New York. It's a town that is, I think, 95% uh, Satmar Jews, Satmar being a, a Hasidic sect. Also near your home uh, of Montreal, there's Tosh. Uh, Kyrgyz Tosh, yeah, that, which is, I think there's like four or 5,000. This is another Hasidic sect, the the Tush sect. These are places that like they maybe don't even really feel like Canada or the US. In in Kyrgyz Yoel, Yiddish is the first language of over 90% of the population. We could have a whole debate about the extent to which US law and the US constitution is even like properly applied in this area that's within the United States. Or Canadian law. They have massive issues. And then on the way other side of the spectrum is like Bathurst Street. Yeah. We should say what Bathurst Street is. Oh, right. So Bathurst Street is like the street that extends all the way from like the south end of Toronto, all the way north many kilometers. And it's like kind of interspersed with Jews living all along it. For like a 40 kilometer stretch, uh, there's something like 200,000 Jews in the greater Toronto area. And a pretty good chunk of, of us live within walking distance of Bathurst Street. It's like historically the Jewish community sort of gravitated north up this corridor. Mm-hmm. And as a result, like you go along Bathurst and different parts of it are home to like different communities, but also like tons and tons of Jewish institutions, synagogues, community centers, offices of not-for-profit. Yeah everything. It's like a real corridor, but it's also a real street in Toronto. And Bathurst Street is home to many communities. And I think, like, overwhelmingly, Jews in Toronto are wholly integrated into our civic and cultural life here. Bathurst Street isn't like a Jewish-only zone. It's a place that I feel great affection towards and I love seeing a place that feels like my own community, but like it's not cut off from the world. Not at all. Anyone can walk under that Eruv. Yeah, exactly. But it's true. There will always be the Hasidic type sect that is completely isolated. And I could totally imagine them having their own planet. Right. And loving it too. (laughs) 
Because they're also not very, they're not usually very Zionist. Okay, that's a very big generalization. But I think, it's, no, I think you're right. I, I think by and large, most Hasidic sects are like formally either a Zionist or anti-Zionist. Yeah, okay. if many individual members might be Zionist. Yeah. For clarity, a Zionist meaning they don't take a position one way or the other. Yeah. They often are not connected to Zionism particularly, so they're not really looking for the homeland in that way. And I mean, Mm -hmm. even just the names of all of the Hasidic groups, they come from the small towns in Europe that they're from, which are not Israel. (laughs) They um, definitely can find meaning in a place that's not Israel, which maybe they could find on another planet. It's interesting, like the fact that when these groups left Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries, and most of them fled under extreme circumstances of violence, either the pogroms or the Holocaust, they didn't set up new rabbinical courts and take on the new names of where those were. I guess a few of them did, like the Bostoner Rebbe and the Boston Hasidic sect, but groups like Satmar or Lubavitch effectively recreated the Eastern European court in America, and thus they like mythologize Eastern Europe in a way like not dissimilar to the way Zionists mythologize Israel. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's true. I do think that makes sense. I'm definitely willing to concede that if there are Haredi Jews in the 24th century, they set out on their own because like their whole shtick has always been rejection of modernity and what other way to reject modernity than by just like getting as far away from the Federation as possible. But then they'd have to accept technology as well. Well, I think by and large, most Haredi Jews are willing to accept technology under like supervised uses for the purpose of leaving. Like just like how like Haredi Jews don't have a problem getting on an airplane. Like I, I don't oh, think for they sure. would have an issue getting on a, a starship to go be dropped off on another colony. True, true. Could you imagine a holodeck for the Haredi Jews? <laughs> I kind of feel like the holodeck would, would not be permitted in no, the Haredi world. Definitely except, not. You know, under very strict supervised purposes like replicate a bait midrash if you need to do some remote (laughs) learning or something. But this is a community where like in many groups, you need to ask your rabbi's permission if you want to have a cell phone. Most Haredi day schools will not admit children if their parents own a television. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Can you imagine living without the internet? Well, the thing is, I think a lot of them are on the internet, (laughs) but there's this like dissonance where they're not supposed to be. Yeah. Well, what about Jews who are not in the Haredi world, then the Federation is an incredible place where I think like the values of tolerance could allow Jewish communities to thrive. Mm -hmm. But it's also the home of like trillions and trillions of people across hundreds of member worlds, probably thousands of colonies. Yeah. And the reality is like, if you want to have a cohesive Jewish community, you really need a critical mass of people. You need a Bather Street, where, <laughs> you know, you can have enough people that you can build real meaningful communities. And even though, well, I think, like, especially this current COVID situation has changed the way we view virtual communities, like the reality of, of space travel, the reality, the fictional reality <laughs> of space travel is that, like, you, if, if you have like a time delay or if, if you want to be attending like a Seder or something like that, you, you need some people in your local sector. <laughs> there's a school in Winnipeg called the Croydon School. Um, there's also one in Brooklyn called Hebrew Language Academy. And these are public schools 
that teach Hebrew language and Jewish history, but provide no religious instruction, and that are open to everyone and have diverse students. You know, there are institutions in Toronto, like the JCC, which does great programming for the Jewish community, but also just has like maternity classes and a gym and a pool and swimming lessons that anyone can sign up and for. And a theater. Do you think it would be desirable to have a planet in the Federation or certain parts of the Federation that Jews understand as like their place where they gather, but everyone is welcome? Who do you think would go there? I think I might. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I would be the captain of the Enterprise, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, you're too busy exploring the galaxy to be on a planet. Like Captain Sisko said to Admiral Ross, I'll go wherever they send me, but when I go home, it will be to... Well, in my case, not Bajor. Planet (laughs) Yitzhak Rabin or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I don't think there will be a planet Yitzhak Rabin. But I do think there would be like, maybe not a planet, but community planet. Or even if it's not official, it's like, oh, you know, the reformed Jews really have a great scene on Delta Vega. So if I'm in the sector and I'm looking for a place to live, I'm probably going to set up shop on Delta Vega. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? Will there be another reform, reform Jews? <laughs> It'll be like reformed, reform Jews? You know, it's impossible to imagine the form that liberal Judaism will have in the future. But we've talked about before how like, I reject this idea that Orthodox Judaism represents an originalism or something like that. I think that all Jewish communities in the world today exist in a state that is a response to modernity. Some embrace that modernity and some reject it, but they're all in response to it. So mm-hmm. like the idea of of liberal Jewish practice, I think, will continue. And just like today, conservative and reform Judaism and their cousins in other countries, because like the labels conservative and reform are are very North American, these are movements that embrace liberal democratic values. And liberal democratic values are really what the Federation is all about. Mm -hmm. So I think that Jews will exist in the future. If we assume that there's a Federation, I've got to assume that there are thriving liberal Jewish communities. And in those thriving liberal Jewish communities, their mothers are forcing them to join Starfleet. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, like, World War III doesn't wipe us out, or the eugenics wars. I guess that was in the 90s, so we should be all right by now. (laughs) But yeah, so I was going to ask you, Josh, if there weren't a planet like this, let's put it this way, Mm -hmm. and you were a Jew living in the 24th century, where would you want to live? If you had to pick a planet, which one would you pick? Imagine that property tax is way too high on Earth. (laughs) So you can't live on Earth. Where would you go? We don't know why everyone doesn't live on Earth, but it must be like scarcity or something like that. Well, I think it's also just adventure. The economics and the rationale for setting up a colony are not entirely clear. Deep Space Nine makes an argument that it's to pursue agriculture and like living off the land, which was a value that the social Zionists had as well. If I'm not living on Earth, uh, I think I want to live at like Bathurst and Eglinton. Can that be a thing? <laughs> I want to live you in, mean like, a... exactly where you live? <laughs> <laughs> I would want to live in a part of the Federation that is safe. Going out to these far-flung colonies does not seem really safe. We hear all the time about them being attacked by aliens or taken over by Cardassians or whatever, safe and undisputed and well-established. I don't need to go, like, feel alive by farming. But, like, say you weren't going to join a colony. You were going to go to a planet that's already, like, well-inhabited by aliens and is an alien planet. Which one do you think you fit in with the best? Would you, like, go to 
Kronos end up on Bajor? Not Kronos because I'm a vegetarian. Oh yeah, that's that would be rough. I'll bet Vulcan has like really awesome reform and conservative synagogues. <laughs> uh, there's got to be like a lot of expats living on Vulcan, and there's got to be sure. lots of Jews among them. They probably yeah, have I mean a they really had cool Spock there. Yeah. Kind of like how the liberal university towns in America all have a neat radical Jewish community. Yeah. In them. Although the climate really does not agree with me, I I like the cold. Maybe maybe Andoria. Hmm. Uh, I like the ice. It's subterranean. <laughs> I don't know why that's a that's a plus. <laughs> what about you? Where do you think you'd want to live in the Federation? Vulcan also sounds kind of nice to me, but I feel like I would live on Bajor. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of like Bajorans. They've got a cool vibe. Spiritual. I think they balance modernity and religion very well. It's clear that they're like not an aggressive civilization, but are quite technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. Era obviously matters. Bajor under the occupation, obviously not such a great place to live. Okay, but I, yeah. I think the arc of where this series lead us, you know, it's reasonable to assume that by the late 24th century, Bajor is entering into the Federation mm-hmm. and things might be changing on Bajor might be a great time to follow like Captain Sisko and uh, set up shop there. Could you imagine the property costs of Toronto in the 24th century? (laughs) It's not really clear how like the economics of land work. We see that some people have great places like uh, Joseph Sisko has a restaurant in the French Quarter. Captain Kirk in the films has this beautiful 1980s condo uh, in San Francisco looking over the bay, but it's never really explained how that's divvied out. And I don't think you can just be like, uh, excuse me, I'd like something with a good view of Residio because, like we said, there's like trillions of people in the Federation. Yeah, I really think Earth is like probably not available. Chava, I have a really important question for you. I'm ready. Did Star Trek wipe Israel off the map? Oh, I don't know. No. Israel's there. In a certain sense, Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, cannot exist in the 24th century because on Earth in the 24th century, there are no nation states. Government is the United Federation of Planets. So there's no, like, state of Israel. No. You think there won't be a Jewish goings-on in Israel, the land? I think that Star Trek presents the opportunity for a utopia here. If we have a region where Jews can have a national home, but that it can be done without excluding anyone else, then then like that's the the dream, isn't it? Yeah. There are certain leaps in accepting the state of the Federation that seem unimaginable because yeah. conflicts on Earth today seem intractable. But We're told time and time again that Earth is a unified planet of peace. I have to imagine that there is a just and open society there where Jews can continue to have that expression of identity, of of feeling that connection ancestral to, to the land, but that does not come at the cost of anyone else's liberty or justice. Totally. Yeah. I agree. There are some real practical considerations to take into account when it comes to like Jewish ritual practice and living on another world, but I don't know if we have the proper expertise to answer all of those questions. No. Do you think we should go to Reb Alert? I think we should go to Reb Alert. Reb Alert. Belay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs>
Welcome to Reb Alert. Uh, Rabbi Jennifer Gorman has been a leader and educator in conservative Judaism for more than 30 years. She serves as the executive director of Merkaz Canada, which is the Zionist voice of conservative Judaism in Canada, and the executive director of the Canadian Foundation for Mazorti Judaism, an organization that supports Mazorti and conservative Judaism in Israel. Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Gorman. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. We're excited to have you. Today, we're talking about Jews in space. We are imagining what Jewish life might look like in Star Trek's vision of the 24th century, whether it's on worlds that we know of, worlds to be imagined, Jews serving in Starfleet. And we thought that one area we could specifically get some guidance from you on would be challenges to Jewish religious life presented by Halakha and living in space in the 24th century. Excellent. Before we dive into questions, do you, do you have any preliminary thoughts? It's really interesting that I'm discussing this with you because one of the things I've had to deal with, because I'm married to Sean, and I'm going to just mention my husband, Sean, is also a rabbi, and he's a U.S. Navy chaplain. And it's led us to look into halakha in a weird sort of way. For instance, how do you observe kashrut? How do you observe Shabbat? How do you figure out the week when you're in a submarine, which would give us some insight into how do you observe in space? Because Sean's first posting after he graduated seminary was with the submarine fleet. We also had issues with travel. Like, what do you do if you transport from one time zone to another time zone to go observe the holidays? And one year, Sean had seven days of Hanukkah because he flew to Guam to be with the the community there, the military community there. And when he would go often, he would go on a Thursday and he'd be in Guam for Shabbat. And then he'd come home and he'd leave on Sunday. But when he would land back in Hawaii, then it would still be Shabbat. So all of these are questions that we've thought about and we've spent years delving into. So it's really interesting to think, well, how would you do this? How would you take these ideas and transform them for life on a starship? Oh, that's fascinating. I think that presents a really interesting jumping off point. How did your family deal with calendar issues when jumping around the dateline or places like a submarine where the days may not even be entirely clear? And what inferences can we draw from that for the observance of the Jewish calendar in places that may not be on Earth or have day and night in the same way we have them? Years ago, we decided that our postache was Rabbi Joel Roth at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And and he, he used to write back to us all sorts of interesting questions when we would be emailing these halakhic questions back and forth. One of the things that we learned from him was the calendar is linear, which means if you jump backwards. So, for instance, when Sean would leave Guam and it would be on a Sunday and he would arrive back in Pearl Harbor and it would be Shabbat, you don't go backwards in time. Hmm. You always go forwards. So, it's not Shabbat. It's Shabbat. For me, because I would be at home and therefore I couldn't pick him up at the airport. But for him, it wasn't Shabbat. You can't have two Shabbatot in a week because it's the seventh day. And once you've had Shabbat, you start counting again. The result of that is really that you end up with a very long Sunday. But on a submarine, the question is, what day is it? And what do you do when you're changing time zones? You know, the joke about the Jewish astronaut. The astronauts come back and, and everyone's thrilled and everyone's asking how they're doing. And the Jewish astronaut says, well, I'm exhausted. It's constantly, Shachrit Minchamarev, Shachrit Minchamarev, Shachrit Minchamarev, you know, as you go around and around and around. But it doesn't work that way. The rule is, if you're on a ship, whether that's 
an aircraft carrier, a submarine, or a starship, you are based on whatever time you left. So if you leave from Earth, you're going to be based on Earth time, and you're going to keep that time. The day may get shortened, but you still have those seven days. When does Shabbat start? When does Shabbat end? You're going to base that on the time zone from which you left, because that's time zone you're going to be in. I suppose the main difference I would see if you're in space, though, is that you no longer have the sun that is fixing the day. So the day is completely defined by Earth's own axis spinning. So if you're traveling within space, you wouldn't even have necessarily day, night. There's no concept of that, really because you you may not be next to a star. Right. Would you take Earth's hours? Like, how exactly would you define the day? I would like to think if you're on a ship, like I said, you would take the hours from wherever you started because you're not going to see a sun. You're not going to see a sunrise. You're not going to see a sunset. Even in a polar day or a polar night, the sun hits the horizon. Even if it's still light, there's a feeling of it setting. But most of the time, even if you're at the Arctic Circle, Shabbat gets set at the nearest location where there's a Jewish community. So I think if you're on a starship, you're going to take that experience. Where did I leave from? Where's the nearest Jewish community? the nearest Jewish community, what Jewish community did did I come from, and try and stick with that time. Because there is still on a starship night, there's a night shift, a day shift, Mm -hmm. there's still a concept of those days. The question I think is, what happens when you go to another planet and their time is different? Maybe their weeks are different. Maybe their days are longer or shorter. Their year is almost certainly going to be different. There are all different opinions. There's one opinion that says that if we're on another planet, that Judaism was given to us on Earth. And therefore, if we're on another planet, we wouldn't be observing. You don't have to observe the same way because the rules are different. I, I think it's a little like mitzvot shatului ba'aretz, commandments that are dependent upon the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. There are commandments you do that you have to do in the land of Israel, and there are commandments that, those commandments, and when you leave Israel, you don't have to worry about them. The Shemitah year, you know, the seventh year where we, we don't plant, maybe we wouldn't have the same observance. But I think that a Jew who wanted to observe would want to find a way to do that. And so I think that on a planet, you would follow that sun's cycle, that day. Because a day, in my opinion, is really random. Halakhic hours already are not the same as a regular hour. It's not 60 minutes long. It's how did I divide up from when sunrise was this morning to when sunset is tonight? And I divided it by 12. And now I could figure out what's the third hour by which I need to say the Shema in the morning. So I think you could look at the time and say, when is the sun coming up? And I'm going to count every seven days. Sunrise and sunset are going to be different, just like they are very different in Hawaii, where we were luckily stationed for three years, (laughs) versus North Carolina, where we live, versus here in Toronto. I guess it may not coincide with when you want to take your break from work anymore. I I, I feel like humans are a bit bit, uh, adapted to the five-day work week or six-day work week. That's definitely true. I think we may 
have some problems. But again, if we're on a different planet, we're going to have to adapt to a very different week. Mm-hmm. What do you think about keeping Kashrut in uh, <laughs> in outer space? Or if you're in Starfleet, they use replicators that are not actually food. You can't really shecht uh, something that's replicated. Shecht right. is killing in the ritual way Jews kill their food. If you look at the laws of Kashrut, which appear in Leviticus, right? So Leviticus chapter 11, you're going to look at that and you're going to say, how am I dealing with this? If I'm dealing with a replicator, I believe that that would be Devar Chadash because replicators, and now I've done way too much fan-based research into replicators. (laughs) Replicators are going to use the basic cells of matter to reform whatever you want. The same cells can become both, you know, a BLT or a Shabbat pot roast. Yeah, it sounds a little like mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sounds a lot like mine. Yeah. And you know, so it's going to taste like whatever you want it to taste. Given that, I think that any food made in a replicator is kosher and parv. However, I read a really interesting opinion the other day that said you would actually need five replicators on a starship. Star Trek fans get into this way too much. You would need a milk replicator, a Fleischig <laughs> replicator, a, a, so a Pesach dairy replicator, a Pesach meat replicator, and then a replicator for all of the other crew members who don't keep kosher. And the reason that this person said that was you need to be able to maintain the practice of kashrut. If I can walk in any time and just get whatever I want and I can have a cheeseburger because I know it's all parv, then that's a problem. And when I land on a planet and food isn't necessarily replicated for me, I won't know how to do it or I won't be in the practice of thinking about it and therefore I'll have a problem. I think for Jews, it would still be hard to have a cheeseburger. If you're a mitzvah observant Jew, I think a cheeseburger would still be weird. Although you can go here in Toronto up to Shelley's and get poutine with of cheese, of course. So, you know, there are options. But I don't really see the replicator to be any different than that par of cheese or the fake, the imitation crab sticks that are in my freezer right now mm-hmm. or par of margarine that we use. I think the issue is much more, again, what happens when you land on another planet or if in the case of Voyager where they were preparing food or an enterprise where they were preparing food real food and using the replicator in a rationed out manner. Mm -hmm. So now where did that food come from? So look at Voyager, you've got Neelix making all sorts of interesting dishes. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to Leviticus. Does something have a hoof and does it chew its cud? If it has a hoof, if it's a land animal and it chews its cud and it has a hoof that's split, okay, that according to the rules of kashrut, that should be a kosher animal. And therefore, you also have to travel with a shochet who knew how to ritually slaughter. But, <laughs> but you could do it. If you knew what you were doing, you could do that. If you're talking about things that live in the water, does it have fins and scales? If you're talking about something that looks like a lizard or creeps along, an insect, well, then you're, that's not going to be kosher. What if they had no kosher type animals on the planet? I guess then they would have to eat 
those things though if they to save their lives or you're vegetarian we end up places where we can't get kosher meat for sure i guess i have two questions the first is the descriptions in the tanakh of the categories of food don't really align to our taxonomical understanding of the animal kingdom and i wonder if in some ways that actually is more useful for application to life on other worlds because we've had to take these physical descriptors of attributes and then apply them to the animal kingdom the second question i wanted to ask was what do we do in the world of birds where even today there is historic division between communities that have accepted certain new world birds that were unknown to those who codified the laws of kashrut and those who don't accept them this became a huge discussion at our dinner table the other night (laughs) the question was well if you could taxonomically say that this is a cow but if you're on another planet it couldn't be a cow how would you deal with that and One of my sons was like, well, it's sort of a pseudo cow. And my other son, who's a science kid, is like, not acceptable. (laughs) So you have those issues of how do they line up? I think that the fact that it's not according to our taxonomy means we can with fish or things that swim in the ocean, things that are larger land animals, we can figure out. But you're right. Birds are a huge problem because we have a list of birds. These are the birds you're not allowed to eat basic problem is we don't know what all of them are. Dukifat is the one that I always use as an example. No one knows what that is. No one has any (laughs) idea what that is. The issue came up when turkey became a popular food. And then, of course, there was confusion as to where turkey actually came from because it's a North American animal, but people for a while thought it came from India. So there's all sorts of discussion in the halakhic literature about where these animals actually come from. In the end, Jews were eating turkey, most Jews. The example given was, well, it looks like a chicken. Its gizzard is similar to the kosher birds. It has this extra toe. Its eggs appear like kosher eggs. So it should be kosher. So it's a turkey is really just like a big chicken. <laughs> like you have a turkey, you have a chicken, you have a dove. These are all kosher animals. They're all similar in their bodily makeup and their eggs. Whereas an ostrich doesn't look anything like this. And an ostrich is not a kosher animal. You could also say it's not a problem because clearly this is a list of birds that's forbidden to us based on earth. If we're only forbidden these birds, unless a bot call, a voice from heaven comes out and gives us another list of birds we can't eat on Bajor, then we can eat any birds on Bajor. And of course, because we can't have one opinion, there would be, you know, this rabbi who said, well, all birds on Bajor would be kosher because none of them would be on the list from the Torah about what is a non-kosher bird. And then someone else would say, we don't have a Masora, we don't have a tradition of eating those birds. And the list of kashrut was given to us to be for the planet Earth. So therefore, no birds are kosher. You know, it's like having Hasidic shrita. So we'll continue the tradition of two Jews and 12 opinions. One of the overarching themes of Star Trek from 1966 through to today is who is a person and what constitutes a sentient being? I think a corollary of that question is in the universe of Star Trek, who is capable? 
capable of becoming a Jew. Can an alien be a Jew? Can a synthetic intelligence be a Jew? Until this very second, I would have said absolutely any humanoid should be able to become Jewish. Beyond humanoid, then I'm going to have to think a little more. Back to my discussion with my family, I never should have brought this up at the dinner table. <laughs> but we we're having a discussion. What if you have a different type of life? not carbon-based life. And it was an episode of the original series where they had a silicon-based life form and Spock was able to communicate with it. It was assumed to be intelligent and can communicate, can it be a Jew? My gut says, if we accept someone as a person and the person doesn't necessarily have to be human, that that person should be able to convert to Judaism. Klingon people are not necessarily different than Vulcan people or Romulan people or human people or whatever. I think that that was one of the values that Star Trek proposed. And that's why you had a multicultural bridge for the original series. And I think that's an ideal that exists in Judaism. If you want to become a Jew, you should be able to become a Jew. We don't proselytize, but we do welcome. And so I think that'll still be the case. Synthetics are a little harder because you have to accept them. But if you accept that a synthetic life form is, in fact, a humanoid life form and therefore equal to all other humanoid life forms as opposed to creating a synthetic pet, then I think we'd have to accept them as converts as well. They're independent individuals. One of the things we're looking at this episode is the extent to which Starfleet, an ostensibly secular organization, has accommodated officers of diverse cultural backgrounds. And Chava and I are going to be talking about uh, some instances where they've succeeded at that and some instances that, that they've really failed at it. What mm -hmm. obligations does that put on Jews who are serving in Starfleet in order to live full Jewish lives as members of the organization? And I wonder what incentives you can draw coming from a, a U.S. Navy family as well. One of the things we learned early on, or I should say I learned early on, because Sean actually grew up in the Navy. His dad was a career enlisted guy in the U.S. Navy, was you have to be willing to put yourself out and be honest and share who you are and what's important to you and what you need from the beginning. I actually think that's a good lesson for anyone anywhere, not just in Starfleet. That means opening your doors. That means explaining, being willing to explain. Sometimes it's frustrating to be the token Jew anywhere, not just in the military, but in, in a work environment where you get to explain why Hanukkah is just not that important, but Shmini Atzeret, that holiday that you've never heard of, is really important to me. <laughs> that's it's a difficult thing, and you need to be really proactive. In order to make sure that you have a full life, you're going to want colleagues. You may be the only Jew on a ship, whether it's a military ship or a starship. So how do you do Seder? You can Zoom with your family. They may be light years away. Or you can make sure that you have a community with you who's going to come and share your experiences. So Shabbat dinner is not you having Shabbat dinner alone in your quarters. Shabbat dinner is you making sure that you have people who want to learn and want to support you in your observance and building that community. And that happens in a lot of the Star Trek series. You know, Kira, Major Kira has people who they're not observing Bajoran religion, but support her in her observance of Bajoran religion. 
um, Chakotay, the same thing. He will sometimes go off to do something that he needs to do. He'll be supported in it. Worf, Tuvok, all of them. And maybe we have a lot to learn from them because they've managed to balance their religion, even if they don't call it religion, their belief systems with a life in Starfleet or a life in space. When we become so advanced, we should be interested in learning from each other and sharing with each other and being able to say, this is my religion. This is what I need. This is what I do. How can we make this work? Being a little flexible, understanding that your duties are still your duties. And that goes, if you're in the Israeli military, that goes if you're in the Canadian military or any other military, if you're serving in government, you're going to have to work around that. And maybe you're not doing everything, but you might be doing some things because they're necessary to the functioning of the country. Same thing on a starship. I think there are ways that we can definitely do that without having to give up our belief systems and the cultural piece of that as well that's so tied into that. Rabbi Gorman, thank you so much for joining us at Reb Alert for Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you. This was very exciting. And I look forward to listening to many, many more of your podcasts. Chava, that was such an incredible interview. Yeah, I love that. That was great. I got to know Rabbi Gorman a little bit a couple of years ago. She was the interim rabbi at my synagogue at Beth uh, She was actually the first woman to ever serve as a rabbi at Beth And I think she's uh, such a great source of Jewish knowledge. And we learned also such a great source of Star Trek knowledge. So yeah. we're going to have to have her back. Definitely. She was so fun. If you want to learn more about the work that Rabbi Jen Gorman does, check out merkaz.ca, M-E-R-C-A-Z.ca or uh, check her out personally on Twitter, Rabbi underscore Jen. As well, Rabbi Gorman very generously prepared a Safari source sheet for our conversation, and you can find a link to that in the episode description. So, Chava, mm-hmm. do you think that if you were living in the 24th century, you would want to serve in Starfleet? I mean, yeah. How could I not? And there seems like there would be even space for me because I do science. Yeah. We haven't really discussed it much, but you are completing a PhD in quantum chemistry. Yeah. And I kind of feel like Starfleet would need a little bit of that. Definitely more than they would need <laughs> antitrust lawyers. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there would be challenges to like being a Jew and living a fulfilled Jewish life in Starfleet? I think it's kind of hard to be a Jew without other Jews because it's such a community oriented lifestyle. A lot of it involves doing things with other people. I think that's why it's actually hit the community hard with uh, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. I still think it's possible. And Come on, there must be Jews in Starfleet. There must be. I mean, we've mentioned before there's a book series called Starfleet Corps of Engineers, which features Captain David Gold, a practicing Jew. And I think for today, we should put David Gold in a little box and say, let's do a David Gold episode in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about being a Jew in Starfleet, part of what I rush to is like this question of accommodation. Like, how much does an organization like Starfleet let you practice diverse cultural beliefs? beliefs and rituals. And sometimes Starfleet's track record is maybe not so good. They suck sometimes. The first time that I remember being just completely shocked at how non-accommodating
accommodating they were was in the episode Ends in Row. Oh, yeah. Where she walks off the transporter and Riker's just like, take off the earring. You're breaking dress code. She just sort of like sheepishly takes it off her ear and it's so upsetting to see that happen. That was really shocking to me because right. their portrayed is so open and liberal egalitarian it seems so contrary to the values of starfleet exactly and it comes up again too in um in the voyager episode learning curve tuvok he's like training these maquis crewmen who haven't quite fit in with Starfleet, even though they were given no choice about whether or not they wanted to be a part of Starfleet. He tells us, Bajoran, Crewman, Garen, take off your earring. And both Garen and Roe, by the end of those episodes, they're like, ah, you've proved your worth, so you can have your earring yeah, back. Yeah, oh but my like, god. Come on, that is not a way to deal with cultural accommodation. No. You know what really upset me? What? Okay, I went down a Star Trek rabbit hole here. Oh, no. I wanted to find out if Starfleet officers wore earrings in other contexts. And? And sure enough, Uhura wears, like, the most amazing fashion-forward jade hoop earrings <laughs> in a couple of episodes. Uh, Charlie X is one of them. They're, like, so amazing little gems of the 1960s. And it's like, come on, those are beautiful. But why is Uhura allowed to wear hoop earrings? And these Bajorans can't even wear something that is sacred to their cultural identity that yeah. Normally, they like never take off. Only in death do they use it as like a sort of grave marker. Oh, Star Trek, you really let me down on yeah, that one. Yeah, definitely. It just seems like oppression of Bajorans. This is why I want to live on yeah. Bajor. They are the good ones. <laughs> yeah, it makes me really angry to think about it. I, I like generally think that Tuvok is a bit of a jerk, but Riker says it's in the Starfleet uniform code that you can't wear an earring. So, ugh, I do not like that. No, I didn't and, either. And I would have to say that even though I don't wear a kippa, I don't think I would be in Starfleet if you were not allowed to wear kippas. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how Quebec is. Do you want to talk about Bill 21? Quebec has passed a bill where government employees that are serving the public are not allowed to wear any religious garments. Well, their excuse is like that might make someone feel influenced in some way or uncomfortable. So this applies to like teachers, social workers, anyone working in an office that is serving the public. It doesn't apply to workers that are already there, but having been raised around many people wearing kippahs and scarves, it's really hitting the Jewish community hard because there are many female teachers that wear scarves, male teachers that wear a kippah. To not be allowed to do that for them could be a serious violation of their religion. It's just super xenophobic. And unfortunately, I think it's mostly targeted at Muslims. I think that discrimination against a single group never stops with that group. Inevitably, it spreads to other groups. And inevitably, beyond that, it undermines the just principles of a whole society. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Bill 21, straight up, they were just targeting Muslim women. And they were like, well, if some Jewish men and Sikh men get caught up in that, they like didn't care too much about that. Yeah. But to me, it just fundamentally undermines the idea of Quebec being a just society. Like this is a law that like for some Muslim women, it was just career ending. And yes, people who were in their current job got to stay. But for example, if you were trying to get a promotion, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. If you were in an occasional posting and wanted to become full time, which like in the world of government, that's how most people get in is you take like a mat leave or something like that, and then eventually get hired full time. Right. 
I've read news accounts of people just leaving Quebec because of that. And it's devastating and it's unfair. And I hope that the courts are able to put it down. It's just trash, especially because there are religious symbols all over Quebec. Like literally every street is named after a saint. I mean, in Montreal, there's a bylaw that says nobody is allowed to build higher than the giant crucifix yeah. that is on the nearby mountain. Yeah. So yeah, Montreal's built on a mountain. It's actually Mont Royal. At the top of it, there's this like giant cross that's like lit up at night. And it's like a beacon, like come to... No, Chapa, it's the letter T. It stands for this is a secular society. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I should have realized that. <laughs> and I understand that there's like a troubled history there that a lot of Quebec secularism is a response to the quiet revolution, which was like Quebec's rejection of the control from the Catholic Church on society. But I don't know, so often it just feels like they're just attacking Muslim women and they don't care who else gets caught in the crossfire that. No, it's really, it's just awful. There's not much else to say about it. Okay, let's now go to the complete opposite end of the religious accommodation spectrum. So the Deep Space Nine episode, Sons of Moog, Kern shows up. Hey, remember Kern? And Kern's really mad because he's lost all of his honor and he wants Worf to ritually kill him. And Worf does that. He stabs him in the heart. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't take, but still. And so this is the quote that Cisco says to Worf and also to Jadzia. At the moment, I don't give a damn about Klingon beliefs, rituals, or customs. Now I've given you both a lot of leeway when it comes to following Klingon traditions. But in case you haven't noticed, this isn't a Klingon station and those are not Klingon uniforms you're wearing. There is a limit to how far I'll go to accommodate cultural diversity among my officers and you've just reached it. And to be clear, the way he reached it was by literally stabbing a person in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> literally committing murder. I guess it was attempted murder because they save Kern. Okay, fine. But also in Next Gen, Worf like straight up murders Duras and Picard is like, I don't approve of that. We're putting an official note in your file saying <laughs> that you murdered someone. <laughs> and so like Picard does not approve of this murder, but he's like, hmm, Please do not murder people again in the future. <laughs> Consider if you this could stop. your first and only warning with respect to murdering people. <laughs> and Cisco again is like, there's a line, and the line is murder. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. Cisco would never be caught. I mean, if Cisco told a Starfleet officer to take off their Bajoran earring, the Federation would be like tossed right out of the sector, right out of the sector. Mm -hmm. And I think Cisco is just more understanding of religion and accommodation in general. I guess it's like the difference between tradition and like cultish behavior. It's like mm -hmm. it goes between what is a reasonable tradition and then like what is universally accepted to be harmful to the people that follow it. Yeah, I think Cisco's line is do whatever you want, but you can't harm people. Yeah. And that is, it's live and let live. That is a totally reasonable limit to place on it. I totally agree. All right. I got a question for you, Chava. Mm -hmm. There is a segment at the end of this show where we look for something sweet, a dessert that is hidden away to end out our episode. So did you find an afikoman? Okay. First of all, an afikoman is not sweet. <laughs> have you had an afikoman? It tastes like cardboard. Okay, I have a really bad afikoman, and I know it's bad because Adam told me it was bad. Dr. Adam. Dr. Adam, sorry. I think Wesley Crusher is Joseph. 
Joseph. He basically has like a religious experience where he's with the traveler. Okay, so he's with the traveler like many seasons before, and that sort of seemed like a religious experience. And now he's like wearing his little vest that's blue, and that's just exactly what it made me think of. He's like the dreamer who knows the future and is like the special son who can do anything and he's like just the best and like everyone hates him. <laughs> and there's that one episode where him and Picard are stuck in a pit. Oh, right. Yeah. See? Okay, he is Joseph. I'm going to tell Adam that. I like that. <laughs> Thanks. What's yours? Okay, so mine is from Sub Rosa. And Picard <laughs> says to Maturin, who actually just a few weeks ago, actor Michael Keenan, who played Maturin and also a few other roles in Star Trek, he just passed away at the end of April. Oh. Uh, Maturin is maybe he's like the governor of Caldos. And Picard says to him that he is, quote, obviously not Scottish. And this offended me on a number of levels. <laughs> I mean, Maturin actually does say to him, I am not Scottish. But first of all, like Scotland today is home to many people from all over the world. And presumably in Star Trek, Scotland will be home to like many people from all over the galaxy who, you know, might identify as Scottish, just You'd as hope so. many immigrants from all over the world and their descendants identify as Scottish. Even if Picard meant it in like some kind of ethnic, whatever that means, sense. You don't know if he's maybe like Scottish on one side or something like that. It reminded me of a really ugly practice that I have seen in many Jewish communities, including my own, where Jews of color are told that they don't look Jewish. Ugh. Or like, even if they're not said that, given like questions of like, so how did you end up here? And like, no. And I just want to shout out to like, everyone who's ever been told like, you're obviously not blank. That's a terrible thing to be told. It makes people feel unwelcome. And we all need to try to, to stop that. I think Jewish communities, including liberal Jewish communities, really need to reform the way we treat Jewish people of color in our communities. And uh, yeah, we got to fix that. And Picard, you should know better too. Yeah, come on. That's it for Star Trek and the Jews. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is the original series episodes Amok Time and Journey to Babel and the animated series episode Yesteryear. Thank you to Kyle Sullivan of the YouTube channel Trexpertise for allowing us to use a clip from his video essay, Native Americans in Star Trek. If you're a fan of the works of Edgar Allan Poe or the gothic horror genre in general, check out Kyle's new project. It's a film called Garden of the Gods, and you can learn more about it at gardenofthegodsfilm.com. Thank you so much to Sonia Ballantyne for your insights into the next-gen episode Journey's End, and to Rabbi Jen Gorman for joining us at Rebel Alert. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end credits are Desert of the Lost Soul by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. Wishing everyone a Chag Shavuot Sameach. We'll see you next month. Stay safe.
As well, Rabbi Gorman very generously prepared a Safaria source sheet for our conversation, and you can find a link to that in the episode description.